Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Peter Ward will join us to discuss the Medea hypothesis. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, a common idea among environmental thinkers is that the living systems on the planet are organized in a harmonious equilibrium, and that life sustains itself on the planet through an intricate system of checks and balances. But is this really the case? Is it possible that life on Earth is ultimately self-destructive? Well, join us today to discuss this issue is Professor Peter Ward. Professor Ward is a professor of biology and Earth and space sciences at the University of Washington and also an astrobiologist with NASA. He is a world-renowned expert on the Earth's great extinctions and has published numerous academic and popular works on the subject, including Rare Earth, Why Complex Life is Uncommon in the Universe, and Under a Green Sky. His latest work, The Media Hypothesis, is Life on Earth Ultimately Self-Destructive, explores this topic for a general audience. Uh, Professor Ward, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thanks for having me. And actually, I read about grokking, a Heinlein book, years and years ago. Ah, very good. Not many people know about grokking. <laughs> well, I just hope in this case that to grok me, you don't have to eat me in the end. <laughs> well, we're hoping that you can help us grok the media hypothesis. But first, I want to ask you about one of your first books called uh, Rare Earth, in which you talk about life actually being somewhat novel in the universe. Well, we were really trying to get the sense that microbial life may be almost everywhere. And the book itself has, has been used by many people in many different ways. And most commonly, people seem to think that we said that we're unique. We never wrote unique Earth. We wrote rare Earth. And the other aspect that's pretty fun is that it's been 10 years since it was written. And were I to rewrite it again, I would probably call it rarer Earth. Now, I know that's getting more and more like a beefsteak, but <laughs> there's been nothing in the 10 years that we've seen that suggests that animal-like equivalents will be common anywhere. Mm. And is it just that the conditions for uh, developing complex life are very stringent? Yeah, it takes a long time. But worse than that, most planets seem to move along at a fairly fast time scale where they're rapidly changing. Uh, our own planet, it took billions of years to get to any sort of animal. And in most cases, the planet itself is going to change from the conditions that you would need. Life of our own kind is going to need water, for instance, so you can never go too high or too cold in temperature. And because most stars change rapidly and because planets themselves evolve in very strange and interesting geological ways, it's quite unclear whether there will be many places where you can have the long stability necessary. Mm. And uh, really, there's been no evidence to sort of suggest that otherwise so far. No. In, in fact, the newest idea about Earth is that we're at the smaller end of what the Earth-like planet should be. They now have found 
planets that are about twice the size of Earth, twice the mass, I should say, that were probably the best places that we could go look for life. But because of the extra gravity, life itself, at least the forms of animals where they'd be there, are going to be interestingly different. A lot of really flat stuff. No giraffes, for instance. <laughs> well, it's a shame for them, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah, but just, you know, if, if you're a flatworm and you see another beautiful flatworm, it's all in the eyes of the beholder. <laughs> How did life get to the uh, the point of diversity that it is today here on Earth? Well, the good thing for us is that, again, some of the really rare aspects that are increasingly fascinating are that we have plate tectonics. This recycling allows us certainly to, lucky for us in civilization, it brings metals to the surface, but for life itself, it inadvertently creates a planetary thermostat that allows temperatures to remain constant on the planet. But the most interesting thing that I've discovered in the last recent time, I didn't discover it, uh, Dave Stevenson, the great planetologist from Caltech, has just come up with a calculation showing what the Earth would be like if we did not have a moon. We know that our moon was formed by an early collision in the solar system itself, an event that probably, according to modeling, wouldn't happen very often, once in a hundred perhaps, to get the size of a moon that we have. We certainly see in our own solar system that our planet is unique in having one such large moon. But Stevenson did a calculation. The length of the entire day, that would be the day and night, the 24-hour cycle we have now would be no more than four hours. The spin rate would be accelerated to the point that we've got a four-hour complete revolution of the planet. That's really going to have a huge impact on life, on climate, on all the habitability systems. People are now just really quickly trying to do the calculations to say, could there have been long-term climatic stability for the Earth not to produce itself into, or move itself into, say, a snowball Earth where you freeze, or a runaway greenhouse, which is what Venus did, and Joe Kirschvink at Caltech seems to think the latter would take place, that without our slow revolution, we would have long ago turned into Venus. So it's, this is why I say it's rarer Earth. <laughs> so we were, in a sense, very lucky, and uh, all these conditions just sort of happened to balance out correctly. Yeah, and this is where, again, we get in trouble. Some people say, well, obviously the hand of God was involved in all this. But, you know, I try to point to the fact that somewhere, someplace on Earth, every day somebody wins the lottery. You know, <laughs> lucky things happen to certain lucky people. Enjoy it. And the universe is a big place. So. It is a big place. I mean, the numbers are so staggering that it's impossible to say that we're unique intelligence. How could anybody think that with the Carl Sagan-esque billions and billions out there? <laughs> Well, this in a way is sort of related to uh, your current book, in which you talk about is life really ultimately sustainable, and you really talk about there being two hypotheses really for uh, life on Earth. Yeah, the, the Gaia hypothesis came out of one of the great geniuses that humanity has ever produced, James Lovelock, and he did it in a really interesting way. He was working for NASA and JPL in the 60s, was given some of the earliest really interesting data about the Martian atmosphere, and by looking at the gas composition of Mars, he came to the conclusion that there could be no life on Mars because the atmosphere would be different. Earth's atmosphere, on the other hand, bears a footprint, an unmistakable fingerprint, if you will, of life's presence. And in fact, if all life were to disappear from the planet, very quickly our atmosphere would revert to something much more akin to the Martian atmosphere, thicker still, but nevertheless, without oxygen, without all these life-giving aspects that we see. So he predicted there would be no life on Mars, or very little if there was any. But further than that, he kind of cobbled this together into what was called the Gaia Hypothesis, pointing out that he thought that life itself on the planet Earth 
made the planet more habitable for itself, that life was like a nice guest at a, at a hotel where instead of leaving the towels all over the floor, as I do, and water on the shower, the guest not only cleans up the room, but then paints it, puts in a brand new painting on the wall, prettifies everything, and buys a new couch, and then moves out. Life makes the planet better for itself, and this is really the major kernel that makes up the Gaia hypothesis. So my sense of it is no way, and this came from many years of looking at the mass extinctions and also understanding some of the really important early aspects in Earth history, it looks to me like life has evolutionary major innovations, evolutionary innovations generally lead to disaster. The first photosynthesis, for instance, the first plants that could photosynthesize themselves produce oxygen, which was the most poisonous element on the planet for microbial life. And we had the first of these great mass extinctions. Then blue-green algae produced enough carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to keep it warm. But when plants really extended their realm by evolving more and more and more of themselves, they sucked out so much CO2 that we descended into two of the great snowball Earths, again, removing most life on the planet. And so it went, mass extinction by mass extinction, kind of this bumbling evolution putting itself into nasty corners, and this is really the sort of the genesis of this idea of Medea, who of course was Jason's wife, and probably in Greek mythology was the worst mother ever, having killed her kids in a fit of pique over Jason, who had just run off with another queen. But could you really blame her? <laughs> well, apparently Jason had one great gift, and that was to any woman around him that he so cared to direct his attention to who fell in love with him. And he was not a good commander. He wasn't a very good soldier. He was a terrible king when he became one. But it was that gift that let him re-steal the golden fleece away from Medea's father, Aetes of Colchis. Mm. So really, you argue that biological mechanisms are even more important than the great comet strikes that uh, people have talked about for the great extinctions on Earth. Oh, yeah. There was only one great comet strike. That was the one that killed the dinosaurs. And interestingly enough, since 1980 now, we paleontologists have blamed all five of the big five mass extinctions for the last 500 years on impact. Now we know only one of them was caused by it. All the rest seem to have been caused by either really short-term global cooling, or more commonly, short-term global warming. Volcanic events heat the planet so much that the heat differential that drives currents, the only reason we have wind is because we have warm in one part and cold in the other, and they try to equilibrate. Well, so it is with ocean currents, and if you warm the poles, because the tropics can never be made much warmer, but the poles certainly can, and we're seeing that today, ocean currents diminish. When ocean currents diminish, the amount of oxygen that is brought to the deep sea slows and then stops. The oceans become anoxic. The deep anoxia rises to the surface. And in those anoxic conditions, a whole vast army of microbes today held in check by oxygenated oceans take over. And they produce hydrogen sulfide through metabolism, which is poisonous. The H2S leaks into the atmosphere, and voila, you kill off plants, animals, and everything. And you have the great Permian mass extinction. You have the great Triassic-Jurassic mass extinction. You have the Devonian mass extinction, as well as 12 minor mass extinctions. That's a, not a very Gaian thing to have happen. So really, life, in a sense, kicks off these positive feedback mechanisms that push the Earth into these uh, extreme states. 
Absolutely, and you're totally correct about positive feedback. The Gaia hypothesis says that the feedback systems will all be negative. If it gets too hot, life will make it cooler. If it gets too cold, life will make it warmer. Instead, we see quite the opposite. We see extreme swings in temperature that are abetted by life and extreme changes in atmospheric content, for instance. When I picked Medea, it was perhaps an unfortunate name. A colleague of mine said, well, Medea, you know, she thought about this. This was murder one. This was (laughs) with intent. Whereas he said, really, you ought to call it the Mr. Bean hypothesis, (laughs) where life is just this dumb bumbler, which bumbles into one, one stupid crisis after another. Somehow Mr. Bean usually gets himself out in a nice way, though. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the point. Will we get out in a nice way or not? And the ultimate end game for all of this is the end of habitability on Earth. And the sense of it now is that the age of animals is halfway over, that we have about as much time, 500 million years, to have conditions allowing animals to exist on the planet as we've had. So we're halfway through. We may have as much as 1 billion more years. But at that time, carbon dioxide is going to be reduced to the point that plants can no longer produce oxygen. And when that happens, that spells the end of animals, all of which are obligate oxygen inhalers. Of course, everyone's wondering, is how do humans fit into this picture of controlling the environment? You know, we're both the blessing and the curse, obviously. We certainly have it within us to do a, a lot of environmental degradation. And what we are doing to the atmosphere today, this short-term increase of global warming gases is scarier than even the scariest predictions, I believe. I think the, the thing facing us that is of the single greatest danger is rising sea level. No one, I think, is prepared to understand, or even the politicians, to comment on what will happen with even a three-foot rise in sea level, which is projected to happen certainly no later than 2100. If you look at where agriculture has grown today and recognize that, yes, three feet up doesn't sound very much, but salt water moves laterally. Even a couple of inches rise in seawater around the various continental areas, and especially the deltas where so much food is grown, causes salinization. A three-foot rise could take out as much as 25% of current agriculture. Uh, We are heading towards a minimum of 9 billion people at a time we're going to lose 25% of agriculture because of sea level rise. That's disaster. That's the short term. The long term, unfortunately, this is what it's so ironic. That CO2 is going to be the end of it all because over long periods of time, CO2 has been going down, 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 down. And where it has gone is life has packed it into rocks as major skeletons like corals. Various types of plants do the same thing. And again, this is a very Median way that the Earth is going to be reduced in terms of its ultimate habitability. Life did it. Uh, Turned it into rock. Yep. You can see it everywhere. Anytime you go see a mountain chain and you can look up in those beautiful white sedimentary rocks, that's all that life-giving CO2 that's taken out of the carbon cycle. Life builds these big skeletons. It gets stacked up on the continents and is totally devoid and taken out of the system. So you mentioned in your book actually about biomass then being a test of hypothesis. Yeah, there's some really interesting work coming out of Potsdam where some Germans have tried to, to ask the question, when might there have been the most life on Earth? 
And that would have been when temperatures were warmer than today and CO2 was much higher than today. This would have sparked really a microbial revolution where microbes would have covered most of the sea bottom. They certainly would have covered all the shallows. There would have been many places on the land surface where microbial carpets would have lived, all freshwater lakes. You've got these huge slicks of microbes in very high CO2. They've suggested that perhaps even before animals first evolved 500 million years ago, that we had more life as weighed in the number of pounds of life on the planet rather than the number of species. So biomass was higher then, and it has been on a long-term downturn. Again, it's this lack of CO2 because carbon dioxide ultimately gives the carbon that's necessary to make life. So we are a dying planet, and there's only one solution, and that's us, humans. And the irony to me is that I think this Median concept works on any habitable world and that the only out is the evolution of intelligence to see what's happening and to start removing that carbon out of those mountains and putting it back in the atmosphere. We're doing it now just a little bit too quickly. That's the other interesting thing. You know, the environmental ethic and movement is now predicated on if we could only go back to nature, Mm -hmm. if only we could get to a state where we humans are somehow part of nature once again, where we don't build roads and don't destroy fields, et cetera, et cetera. But that's totally unrealistic. We are not going to give up civilization. And the misery that going back to nature would entail is just something that our species won't do. I think we need the old real politic here. So if we're not going to go back to nature, I think what we have to do is a better aspect of controlling nature. And it's going to have to be geoengineering on a vast scale. And once you say that, boy, it makes people mad because people want their environmentalism. I, too, want it. I want things to be green. But with 9 billion people, you're going to have to make compromises. Mm. The single most important thing we could do is reduce population. And it's strange that in the 70s, there was this very powerful group called ZPG, Zero Population Growth, which has now died. You never see this stated, that there's just too many humans. What do we do about it? Again, real politic. We've got this swell in people that we can do nothing about at the moment. We're going to have to, as a species, get through that, get over this really dangerous hump that we're approaching with civilization still intact. And that is the greatest challenge our species now sees. We get past it. We reduce the numbers. We can then start thinking about keeping the planet habitable for billions of years. Mm. Do you think the environmental movement has been uh, misguided then by this philosophy of Gaia? Yes, Absolutely. I think that it's misguided in the sense that there is just not a realism about how countries themselves, which will will not be dictated to, I mean, you cannot go to China and say, cut your population, or you can't go to India. You can ask them to. They have to come to the conclusion themselves that it has to be done. But it's at this stage, I think, a moot point. I think, well, again, what we have to do is start planning for the coming onslaught, and that onslaught is rising sea level as well as the changes in precipitation and the changes and the really nasty changes to agriculture that dropping snow levels are going to do. We're seeing it already. China's experiencing the greatest drought in its history, and that's simply because snow is not falling on the Himalayas in the way that it used to. It's coming down as rain. The same with the Sierras. I mean, the Great Valley and the San Joaquin Valley are two of the greatest agricultural centers in America, and yet they are totally, totally... Uh, depended upon there being a big snowpack melting in the spring. Just when it gets warm enough for plants to thrive, we have all this river water going into California. If, however, all of that precipitation falls as rain on the Sierras instead of snow, 
there's no snowpack. And by the time you get to summer, there's drought. And that's exactly what's happening in China. Mm-hmm. It looks like we're running slightly out of time. I'm curious, how did you become interested in this issue? Uh, again, it was the mass extinctions and just being a geologist. And I guess this whole contrary spirit of mine, I became extremely alarmed when I began to look more and more at the teachings of James Lovelock and some of the things that he's saying. I, it's, it's not good. For instance, in Seattle, three weeks ago, he went on the radio and said that China is taking over Africa and that within the next 50 years, China will move most of its population into Africa. Secondly, he stated that 5 billion of the 6 billion people on this planet will be dead within 50 years, that Gaia will do it in. I mean, these things are just crazy. So what it does do, it undercuts his really important and correct mentions of the big dangerous this from climate change. And so once you're wrong on such a strange issue as saying that China's going to take over Africa, who's going to listen to you and the stuff you write about? So it's, it's just spooky to me to think that we can depend on Mother Gaia to take care of us. It's that gray matter between our ears. That's our only hope. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final words regarding uh, the whole issue of the Medea hypothesis? No, it's just that I'm taking a whole lot of flack about it. And <laughs> again, I just want people to understand that we have this enormous crisis facing us, and we've got to face up to it and be realists. Indeed, indeed. Well, the new book is called uh, The Medea Hypothesis, Is Life on Earth Ultimately Self-Destructive? Professor Ward, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks, and great questions, and that was (laughs) (laughs) grokkable. Well, we're glad you helped us grok it. (laughs) There we go. And you were just listening to Professor Peter Ward discussing the Medea Hypothesis. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. There's something wrong with the world today. I don't know what it is. Something's wrong with our eyes. We're seeing things in a different way. And God knows it ain't his. It sure ain't no surprise. Yeah, we're living on the edge. Time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Gaia or Medea, and it would like to know if the following five people are more Gaia-like or more Medea-like, and uh, maybe a little reason why. Uh, Professor Ward, you ready to play the game? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Person number one, Gaia or Medea, talk show host Jerry Springer. He is very, very Medean. He's got this deep animosity towards humanity, obviously, because he makes everybody in the show make look like a fool, including his bouncers. <laughs> it is definitely an ultimately self-destructive show, I think. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, number two is the golfer Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods is definitely a guy, and I think that sweet swing is sort of the optimistic hope that we all have for the world that guyans seem to have. Uh, number three is uh, the heiress Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton is a Median. She is, looks to me like self-destruction will be her fate, but she's certainly going to, I think, wish it upon all the rest of us simply for her own entertainment, one gets that sense. <laughs> Maybe for our entertainment as well. <laughs> yep. Uh, number four is uh, real estate mogul Donald Trump. Donald Trump is certainly Median. Once again, his 
form of capitalism, I think, is, is just exactly the wrong way to go. We don't need anybody on this planet making a salary of greater than $100,000. When we have billionaires, it just points out to us the, the incredible median sides of we humans. Uh, and finally, number five, the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Well, he would be a Guyan, except I think the Guyans are misguiding us, so I might make him Medean in chief in the sense that he needs to wake us up and get us on the right path. I have the greatest hope for that man. Uh, I think it's the greatest political thing that's happened in my lifetime to see him elected president. All right. Well, uh, Professor Ward, I do want to thank you for sticking around, playing our game. And again, of course, talking about your book, which is The Medea Hypothesis, Is Life on Earth Ultimately Self-Destructive? Thank you for your time. Thanks so much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.